Uh, the first is prologue and gospel message and ministry of Jesus, uh, the personal ministry to his disciples, and finally the passion. The first half of John takes place over uh, three years. The last half takes place over one week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Lord, we're blessed that you would leave us with your word. My wife calls it the instruction manual. And Lord, let us read it frequently, slowly, and let us read it and learn about who you are so we can figure out who we are. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So why are there four Gospels? X has mentioned this. The ancient Christian writer, Origen, that occurred about 185 A.D., uh, he had a good answer. There are not four Gospels, uh, but one fourfold Gospel. Each Gospel represents a different perspective on the life of Jesus. We need all four to get the full picture. Uh, The prologue to this Gospel of John, this remarkable, profound portion, is not merely a preface or an introduction. It's actually, it's a summation of the entire book. The remainder of John's Gospel will deal with the themes introduced here, which is the identity of the Word, life, light, regeneration, grace, truth, and the revelation of God the Father in Jesus the Son. We're going to study the second uh, chapter of uh, the book of John tonight. Uh, we had, uh, Daryl began with uh, with the first uh, 18, I think it was, verses. And then Andre spoke uh, from 19 to 51. Basically, the, de- the logos of, of God as God and man, the deity, the humanity of logos, the witness of John, the light, the incarnation, the Son of God's manifestation to the nation, uh, the forerunner's testimony, John's self-denial of being the Christ, and John's affirmation of Jesus as the elect one of God. Then we saw the first disciples, Andrew and Peter, Philip and Nathaniel. So let's start, and we're just going to read through the second chapter and then take it from there. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set six water water uh, water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee 
uh, this is the beginning of signs that, that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. The, uh, the expression third day occurs so many times in the Bible, I thought I'd use it as a jumping off point for this study. And after all, this is the third study, right? Uh, my granddaughter once used the expression, it was too big to describe a situation it was too much for her. I came to the understanding that this was also too big for me. This third day could be a study in itself. Uh, I, this is something I pulled up, and I, I just want to share it with you. The meaning of numbers, the number three. The number three is used 467 times in the Bible. It pictures completeness, though to a lesser degree than seven. The meaning of this number derives from the fact that it is the first of four spiritually perfect numbers. They don't say why. The others being seven, ten, and twelve. The three righteous patriarchs before the flood were Abel, Enoch, and Noah. After the deluge, there was the righteous fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, later renamed Israel. There are 27 books in the New Testament, which is 3 times 3 times 3, or completeness to the third power. Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. He was placed on the cross at the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m., and he died at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. There were three hours of darkness that covered the land while Jesus was suffering on the cross from the sixth hour to the ninth. Three is the number of resurrection. Christ was dead for three full days and three full nights, a total of 72 hours before being resurrected. I, I read this and I thought, God, is there any real significance to this? 
Uh, sometimes I think people get a little detail crazy. I do. Uh, while the significance of these statements, these are all true statements. Everything that was said is true. But what do they mean? Should I go to Vegas and bet the farm on number three? You know? I don't think so. But it's easy to establish a timetable and verify this third day that the scripture starts with here. Here's the third day. Uh, John is baptizing in Bethabara. He sees Jesus come to him. This is the first day. Uh, The following day, it says in uh, chapter 1, verse 43, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, found Philip and said to him, follow me. This is the second day. Galilee is about 60 miles uh, north of Bethbara. And uh, it would have taken one very, very long day, or realistically two days to reach Galilee by foot. Uh, Jesus didn't take a cab anywhere. Uh, Jesus and his disciples would arrive in Galilee on the third day. Cana is only about four and a half miles east of Galilee, and it would take a couple hours to get there. Uh, my wife and I can do five, hour, five miles in about two hours. Uh, this easily places Jesus exactly where Scripture places him, in Cana on the third day. Okay, so notice that Mary was at the wedding, and uh, she is significant in what follows. Verses 2 and 3. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Few possibilities is why Jesus is invited to the wedding. Uh, one is that Mary might have been like a wedding planner or organizer uh, of sorts and helping out. And the other is uh, you have to notice that she was aware of the shortage of wine. And another possibility is possibly they were friends of the family, being married, you know, the married couple, and just guests, just ordinary guests. But like I think most everybody here, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't think any of us really believe in that anymore. Maybe at one time, but not anymore. And although it's not stated in Scripture, I have to suspect it was no accident that Jesus was at the wedding. Uh, he was there to fulfill a larger purpose. Uh, there were no accidents in our Lord's life. Now, running out of wine was a major problem. It was a big deal. Wine was a rabbinical symbol of joy. Rabbinical meaning uh, related to the rabbis or Jewish law or teaching. Hospitality at that time uh, was an almost sacred duty. You had to be hospitable to one another, uh, especially at a time like this. Uh, if a wedding in today's world uh, ran out of wedding cake, it'd be no big deal. Uh, most wedding cake doesn't taste very good anyway. Uh, they look good. you know. <laughs> That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to look good. you know. But you just don't eat the wedding cake. Step away from the wedding cake. Uh, but for a wedding celebration at the time of Jesus, to run out of wine would have been a terrible humiliation and embarrassment for the bride and groom. Uh, it would have tainted them socially for a long time to come. 
they really would have been mortified. It's not something that they would have taken lightly. So this is a big deal. This is huge. It's serious. Uh, I mean, you can hear the gossip down the road, you know, like here comes Solomon and Rebecca. Nice couple. But remember when they ran out of wine at their wedding? <laughs> you know, they could go on for a long time to come. And they were big about this. It was like uh, a wedding feast was, was a big deal. It, it wasn't... Uh, weddings have been uh, depreciated in today's world. And In fact, you see among the celebrities and stuff, they have children, they don't even get married. Uh, and you got to notice here that Mary went to Jesus. And this is this implies he at least knew or suspected that Jesus knew something or would be able to do something about this. Uh, he had not yet, remember, he had not yet publicly performed any miracles, as far as we know in Scripture, from what we've read. So it wasn't that she was sure he could do this. Uh, there is a measure of faith involved in this. She knew her son was conceived of the Holy Spirit. That she knew. Uh, But at this time, he had not really begun his ministry. Not at all. Still, I can't help but think of Jesus as probably being a precocious child. He probably gave her reason to scratch her head more than once. Uh, Now that this child is a man, and a man like no other, and yet like every other, uh, Mary comes to him. Verse 4 Jesus said to her, Woman, what, was your, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, it, appeared, it appears obvious here what's going on, but, but you look at it a little closer. Jesus doesn't address her as mother, but addresses her as woman. Uh, and My first reading of this verse left me... Uh, with a, a very odd feeling when I read the, read the word woman. Uh, it seemed an impersonal, very formal way of addressing your mother. Uh, I could never address my mother as woman, you know. And and if one of my kids addressed my wife as woman, I'd have to take them out. That's all there is to it. Uh, in the historical context, though, of this time, in the original language, woman was a very respectful way of addressing Mary. It wasn't disrespectful. Uh, Jesus is God, and his love for his mother is probably greater than any son's love for their mother. Uh, But it also needs to be noted that in addressing her as woman, he kind of separated himself from her. Uh, And and no longer kind of drifted away from being her son and stepped into the role of being uh, God. God is with us. God is uh, to be to begin his, really begin his ministry. But notice the confidence that Mary shows her faithfulness. Uh, I may be wrong in finding the next verse amusing, but I, I couldn't help it. I do. Mary doesn't exactly give up. She goes to the servants and says, "Whatever he says to you, do it." Yeah. I like that. He says, hey, you know, it's not my time. She goes, okay. She was pretty confident. Even if she didn't know exactly what Jesus was going to do, it would appear she knew he would do something. She knew he was going to do something. Once again, she knew that Jesus was so much more than he appeared. It also implies to me that 
Mary had some sort of authority at the wedding uh, and that she was able to give instructions. And here we find a turning point for all mankind. Emmanuel, God with us, is about to reveal himself. This is basically, that's what they call the pivot point. But I can't help take, uh, take it as advice for us, what Mary tells the servants. Whatever he says to you, do it, okay? We read the red letter words. Gives us, Jesus gives us lots of instruction. He gives us lots of direction. And it's imperative that whatever, whatever he says to do, do it. You know, that's the way it is. It's not Nike. It's Jesus. From the time of Moses to now, the complications of spiritual life amongst the Jews has become cumbersome, okay? Uh, the law had exploded. It, it had morphed. It started off rather simply. But then, it, actually, you think about it, the, the law is uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, singers. It has a song called you, Eat, you Ate the Apple, you know? And it's like, it used to be one, one rule. Can you dig it? There was only one rule. And it was, don't eat from the tree of life. That was it. And then it just got more and more and more complicated. You know, God gave the Ten Commandments. The Jews took the laws of Moses and it expanded, expanded, and they, they uh, embellished on them. And before you know it, there's over 600 laws. Uh, and that's something, uh, that's something to remember here. Uh, the chances of living a perfect life under the law were slim and none. Hey, nobody's that perfect that you couldn't mess up at least some. Uh, in verses 14 through 16, we'll see what effect this had uh, and what Jesus did about it. In, in Israel, uh, we went to, I was in Israel, and there were places that we ate at that had uh, sinks at the entrance to the restaurant for ceremonial washing. Uh, so this was, the, the water pots were a big deal. They had to be there. The Jews wouldn't eat without washing. Uh, and they seemed to me to be like rep- representational of the law. Jesus represented the new covenant. He was bringing the new covenant. And the salvation of mankind was at hand. He would do it again. Jesus used what was at hand to perform this miracle. Uh, in John chapter 9, we're going to say, when he has said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Go wash in the pool of Solom. Uh, so he went and washed and came back seeing. He used a little dirt off the ground, a little spit, and he healed this blind man from his blindness. Uh, or the loaves and the fishes, a couple of loaves, a couple of fishes, and he multiplied them. The miraculous catch of the fishes, where he multiplied the catches. Jesus basically could use the things that were around him. He he didn't have to use those water pots, but they were expedient, and they they also illustrated to the people what was going on. It was something that that they would understand was not this is not a magic trick. So in verse seven, Jesus says, "Fill the water pots with water," and they filled them up to the brim. Remember, Mary had instructed the servants, whatever he says to you, to you, do it. And they were obedient to her and to him. Notice the transparency of this. No magic trick. Uh, this was God at work, right out in the open. 
Uh, there was, you know, there was no, uh, the wizard was not behind the curtain. You know, he was right out there. He could, uh, he could perform this miracle right in front of the servants who filled the pots and would draw some out. And he said to them in verse 8, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Jesus used normal people to assist him. Uh, There's almost always a human component in the miracles that Jesus performed. Although simple, we witness here the obedience of the servants. And if we want to serve the Lord and take part in the miracles that go on around us all day long, uh, whether we see them or not, You've got to be obedient, simply obedient, also faithful. Whatever he says to do, do it. The servants obeyed, but imagine how the master of feasts would have reacted to just plain water. They would have been nervous. Okay, you know, take it to the master. Verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew The master of the feast called the bridegroom. The master of the feast was an important position uh, at a Jewish wedding at this time. He was kind of like the maitre d'. He was the head waiter. He was in charge. He ran the show. And that the show would run smoothly and well was like hugely important. This was a big deal. Uh, marriage was sacred for a man and a woman to be joined together. Marriage was spiritually and socially significant and joyous. It was joyous. Uh, looking at maps of Israel in biblical times, I cannot find Las Vegas, Israel, where you could do a drive through on your camel, you know, and get hitched. It's like nowadays. <laughs> Our society in so many ways has cheapened marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Uh, unlike today, these people reserved the institution of marriages and all the elements. Uh, re- they revered them as if they were important. And even the celebration and the wine, it was all important. Everything was important. Uh, can I get a witness? The servants of the feast are blessed to be the first witnesses of the Son of God performing his first miracle. What a cool place to be in! What an amazing place. Uh, what a privileged uh, place. Uh, I'd like to think that some of them got it, you know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But the master of feast, he's quite impressed with the quality of the wine that Jesus created. Uh, I'm sure he was informed of its origin, but he never comments on that, only that it was very good wine. This is good stuff here. This is not Red Mountain. Uh Better than the wine served at the beginning of the feast. In verse 10, he said, uh, he called the uh, bridegroom, he said, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. So here you have the normal strategy of the feast. First you serve the Hebrew national hot dogs. And then after everybody's filled up, you give them the Oscar Mayer. You know? Uh, so the strategy was you, you you put out the good stuff, people get a little toasted, then you start slipping in the cheaper wine. And this was an upgrade, and the bridegroom was complimented for it, even though he had nothing to do with it, nothing at all. 
uh, in fact, if you think about it, the bridegroom didn't even have enough wine. You know, he ran out of wine. He didn't plan good. Uh, one of my favorite uh, commentators, Guzik, David Guzik, uh, Jesus and his disciples were invited to wedding. This is the first of many stories suggesting that Jesus was always welcome amongst those having a good time. Jesus didn't spoil the good time. Uh, I like that because uh, at other places in the Bible, we see gatherings where Jesus is, is involved. And, and it's always uh, eating and feasting. And, and it's a good time. It's a good time. And Jesus is right there in the middle of it. Uh, he doesn't spoil our good time either. And I know you know that. Uh, I think often people resist making a decision for our Lord because they're afraid he's going to spoil their good time. I think I was afraid of that for the longest time. I was having a ball. And when people said, you know, asked about being born again and talked to me like that, it was it was like I wasn't interested. And I was having too much fun the way things were. I didn't have any idea how much better it could be. You know, we we know that. Uh, people that haven't accepted Christ don't know that. So there's a conclusion. Jesus was ready, in and out of season. Remember when he said, my hour has not yet come, but he was able. He respected his mother's request. He was flexible. Even though his hour had not yet come, he responded to Mary's request. He was compassionate to the problem of the the wedding running out of wine. Uh, he didn't say it's not my problem. Uh, he used what was at hand, six water pots. Uh, the results were better wine than the wine served at the beginning of the feast. And we're probably talking about 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine. My dad used to make wine. Uh, and he always had 50 or 100 gallons of wine in the garage. Uh, it was legal. You know, he'd take out a permit and he'd make wine. I'm Italian. Uh, so, and this isn't stated in Scripture. So I got I, I to gotta say, this is a conclusion that I've drawn. Uh, but are we not like these water pots? Uh, here's six common water pots that are not be mentioned as being special in any way. They're just like us. Just like us. Uh, made of stone like our hard hearts before we knew the Lord, filled with water, just plain water. Uh, and here we are. Here we are, all of us, just plain people. You know, ordinary folks filled with the things of the world. We're all, our lives are all different, and yet we're so much the same. Uh, we may like to think we're different, but we're all cut from the same cloth, uh, the fabric of humanity. That's us. Uh, and uh, we're as common as water. We really are. But with Jesus, things become so different, uh, so much better, uh, that we may be presented to the master of feasts, transformed into something so much finer than we were at the beginning. Ordinary water turned into fine wine. That's us. That's us, you guys. That's the way I saw this. Uh, like I said, you know, like I've, I've been told I can share the ideas that the Lord puts on my heart when I'm reading and studying. I just got to tell you that it's my idea. Okay, uh, this is the beginning, verse 11. This is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
I'm sure there's many alcoholics that like to point to this miracle as a reason to drink. You know, I think I may have even used it myself. Yeah. Am I, is it true? <laughs> In the Gospel of John, uh, the miracles are called signs. There are signs that point to his deity. Many signs would follow. John would record seven signs for us. Uh, many would believe. Some would believe his words. Some would believe in the signs. In verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. It would seem that Capernaum was more of a rest stop. Uh, in Israel, Capernaum and Cana are not that far apart. Uh, the dusty trails and roads that Jesus and the disciple walked were all doable. Uh, when we were on the Sea of Galilee, our tour guide had us, uh, had us all stand and face in a direction. And he had us point to a particular landmark on one side. Then he had us point to a particular landmark on the other side. And then he told us, between your hands, you hold 85% of the gospel. And it blows your mind. And it puts it into perspective. You realize that all the places that Jesus walked, all the things that he did, it was all doable. He could, he, you could cover those distances. Uh, you didn't need an Uber cab or anything like that. Uh, and uh, it, it, when you see the condensed area that, that Jesus operated in, it, blows, it really does blow your mind. Uh, <laughs> when you go to Capernaum, there's a plaque that reads, Capernaum, the hometown of Jesus. I found this amusing. It's like Pasadena, California, the hometown of Jackie Robinson. Liverpool, England, the hometown of the Beatles. When I get to heaven, I guess I'll find a plaque that says, Heaven, the hometown of God. You know? I don't think so. In Capernaum, I saw the foundations of Peter's house. It would have been, I'd have to suppose that Jesus spent some time there. I remember staring at those old stones and wondering where he might have slept. Uh, nearby, there was a small synagogue where I'm sure he must have shared. And it's great because having been to Israel a couple of times, and John's been there a couple of times, uh, and others, others of you have been there. When when you hear the words Galilee or Capernaum, they kind of come alive. Uh, you have mental images. I, I, if you have an opportunity to go to Israel, go. Uh, verse thirteen. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Passover was a feast that figures prominently in the Jews' worship of God. On such holy days, the Jews were obligated to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. I know a lot of you know that, but here's what, here's what ends up. It creates a situation. The sacrifice which the Israelites offered at the command of God, command of God, during the night before the exodus from Egypt, and which they ate with special ceremonies according to divine direction. The blood of this sacrifice sprinkled on the doorpost of the Israelites was to be assigned to the angel of death when passing through the land to slay the firstborn of the Egyptians that night, that he should pass by the houses of the Israelites. The sacrifice that was offered, the sacrificial animal was either a lamb or a kid, 
Poor people couldn't afford that. They offered doves. They offered birds, sparrows. Uh, was necessarily a male, one-year-old, and without blemish. Now, this sets the stage for what's going to happen next. Remember, without blemish, uh, as we get ready for verse 14. Verse 14. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and the money changers doing business. Uh, Verse 14 in itself has enough meat in it, pardon the pun, uh, to be a study unto itself. Uh, But here's a a real brief uh, explanation of how things worked. Uh, The Jews were under obligation to go to Jerusalem. It wasn't an option uh, to celebrate the Passover. Being a devoted people, even if they did miss their Messiah, uh, the God-ordained sacrifices were a serious matter to them. It's a serious business. Uh, I'm sure the Jews had their fair share of disingenuous believers among them, just as we do. Uh, Lord knows our hearts. For the most part, I do believe they did indeed fear God, and the obligatory offering of sacrifices was important to them. Their spiritual motivation made them easy prey for the corruption of the day. I mean, you do want to get right with God, don't you? Hmm? The sacrifice had to be without blemish. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy uh, verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So the animal to be slain was judged by the temple authorities. Honestly? Probably not. Usually a blemish was found, meaning you had to purchase a suitable sacrifice, which they just happened to have. Used car salesmen had nothing on these guys. Uh, You couldn't buy a suitable sacrifice. This gets more complicated. You couldn't buy a suitable sacrifice with Roman money. Uh, You had to go to the money changers to change your Roman denarius uh, uh, into temple shekels. Okay? And the rate of exchange was set... By the money changers, okay? The rate of exchange was not favorable to those who needed a suitable sacrifice to offer God. The price of the animal was probably not really negotiable. After all, you didn't want to be an an abomination to the Lord your God, did you? You know? So these poor people, they walked in and they had a lamb or they had a dove or they had something and there was always something wrong with it. You know, it wasn't... It wasn't good enough. And so then they put put them in the system, and the system didn't work. Not for them. Uh, Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he was outraged. When he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. This is verse 15. With the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. Made a whip of cords. Our brother Daryl Ditterbrand taught this verse one time and he said i can just imagine jesus making a whip of cords and what he was thinking you know he was just probably going oh man you know (laughs) i mean this wasn't easy money this was this was going to happen here the scene of the temple was probably bedlam uh it was already busy millions of people uh went to the uh uh to jerusalem 
Amazing. It was a big gathering, and they went to the temple, and they're all trying to get in there, and they're all trying to get a sacrifice, sacrifice, so that they could atone for their sins, uh, sins that they couldn't help but commit with over 600 rules. Uh, this It was not an orderly situation. I can't believe that all these people uh, were being gouged and going quietly uh, uh, to the slaughter, to, so to speak. Uh, Therefore, here, the Lamb of God steps into this picture. He probably did not come gently. Remember, Jesus is God. Uh, He is the Lord of the heaven's armies. He's mighty. How mighty? He's God. Okay? Uh, There was probably an army of corruption, corruption doing business, and Jesus drove them all out, the people and the animals, all of them, uh, this was outrage looking for a place to happen. The corrupt, the corrupt people that were doing this business, they were outraged because they were being forcibly evicted. And this was their livelihood. Even, you know, like even a, a guy, a burglar that gets busted, his livelihood is stealing. And these guys in their own way were stealing. They didn't have guns. But when the people came in, they were easy prey for these folks. Uh, Jesus was outraged that his father's house had been so violated. And righteousness, out, out, uh, righteous outrage trumps insincere dig- indignation every, every time. Even though the temple businessmen were madder than wet hens, they were no match for the Lord. No match. Uh, they all were kicked out. That, and, and it wasn't like there was a little booth over here that sold doves and another booth over here that uh, traded money. Uh, there was probably a lot of vendors. Uh, the synoptic gospel, I've got to make note of this. Synoptic gospel placed the cleansing of the temple at the conclusion of Jesus' ministries. Here John places it at, at the beginning, but the language is considerably different, and it could indicate that there were two times that he cleansed the temple. Uh, verse 16, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. X often refers to New Age churches and modern pastors as those who fleece the flock. These people were guilty of that. Uh, Sadly, this is not alien to the Jews of the Bible. 2,000 years ago, we've seen the same thing happening as happens today on a grand scale. Grand scale. Ecclesiastes, you read... uh, Chapter 1, verse 9. That which has been is what will be. That which is just done is what will be, what will be done. That, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which may be said, see, this is new? It's already been in ancient times before us. And that scripture is made true by what we see happening here in the temple. So as it was, so it will probably be again. In this modern age, Jesus will probably be back to cleanse his temple again, though there's no guarantee. I mean, there's a guarantee that he'll be back. He may not bother with the temple. He just get us out of here. Uh, a few verses ago, in verses uh, 7 to 10, the Lord performed his first miracle. Uh, now in these verses, for the first time, he's presented as Messiah uh, to the people. He's, he does not say, you are defiling the temple. Uh, he refers to this temple as my father's house. And for the first time, he declared who he is. He is the son of God. This is huge. This is huge. 
I love to refer to this church as my daddy's house. It makes me feel good. It really does. And this is this is our daddy's house. Uh, I tell people, going to church makes a bad day good and a good day better. And it does. Uh, so remember who these people are. These are God's chosen people. They've been waiting for their Messiah. Their Messiah. And now he's in their, in their midst. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Psalm 69, verse 8. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Wow. The cleansing of the temple was a demonstration of Jesus' power and authority. And you can't... You know, you can't say, I wonder if he really was successful in clearing the temple. Uh, He drove out all, he drove them all out of the temple. All means all. With the sheep and the oxen, poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. He didn't say, excuse me, you have to leave. Uh, These guys weren't going to leave anyway, no matter how you said it to them. And recalling the words of Psalm 69, the disciples understood that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. We can see that there's an awareness in the disciples of Jesus. Uh, they, they're, they're getting it. They may have not gotten it yet, but they're getting it. And sometimes I think that's where I'm coming from. I believe the Lord is my Savior, but I learn more and more and more about him. Uh, I love getting these teaching assignments. They stretch me. Uh, uh, they may not fully grasp who he is, but they seem to understand he's somebody very special. Verse 18, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? I mean, they're pretty blown away. This guy came in and he really upset the apple cart. Uh, he did, he, or the money cart. Uh, they answered and responded with a question, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Asking this wasn't necessarily out of line. This really wasn't out of line. This man had just rained on their parade, (laughs) big time. Uh, And while the corruption of the temple business couldn't be denied, it was, after all, their uh, livelihood, corrupt as it was. They wanted an explanation. Who are you since you do these things? Jesus had acted with godly authority, and now they wanted him to prove it. I found it interesting that what that they expected him to prove to them that he really had this authority. But they had witnessed it. They had witnessed the authority. So the authority was real. They just wanted to know, how can you do this? How can you do this? Uh, They wanted a miracle to validate it. said, okay, okay, you acted like God, now prove it. It would seem that Jesus was always being asked for a sign. In Matthew 12, when they asked for a sign, the answer that Jesus gave, 12.38, Matthew 12.38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So in verse 19... Jesus answers them and says, 
destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, notice this request for a sign in Matthew drew a similar response. Uh, Jesus spoke of his resurrection as a response to both requests. On the third day, again, Jesus was here for a purpose, to save our souls. Salvation of all mankind to accomplish this, his death on the cross had to be followed by his resurrection. Otherwise, Jesus would have been just another crucified body. But now here in verse 19, the sign that Jesus gives us is the prophecy of his death and resurrection. Verse 20. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he arose. Jews had asked for a sign. They wanted him to perform, to jump through hoops. They wanted a demonstration. He's going to give them one down the line. He's just not going to give them to it. Give him that demonstration now. 21. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, in verse 22, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Uh, I wrote a song quite a while ago called If I Could Have Followed Jesus. Uh, And I wondered if I would have been able to understand the parables. You know, you like to think that, you know, I would have been one of his devoted followers. But I might have been one of his uh, skeptics. I might have been walking around behind him trying to figure out how he was doing all this. Uh, I'd like to think that, that I would have gotten it. We all would like to think that, but you don't know. Or would I have been like Thomas? In John 20, I'll jump ahead a little bit. By the time we get to it, you'll forget anyway. Uh, John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to him, Unless I see his hands... Uh, see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed who have not seen me and yet have believed. Uh, So Jesus had made a mess of the temple, corrupt commerce. Uh, They wanted to know, what sign do you show us? The, The scribes and Pharisees are asking Jesus for proof and did not understand or believe who he was. And I can understand, I can understand this. Uh, some saw a man, some saw God. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. This is the beginning of the ministry of our Lord. Uh, there are bound to have been early believers, but what was the basis of their belief? What was the foundation of their faith? What's in your wallet? Uh, Moreover, what was in their hearts, that's it. Not what's in your wallet, it's what's in your heart. Uh, But in verse 24, 
But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Uh, Jesus knew that this was thin, superficial belief. It wasn't based on anything other than an admiration of the spectacular. Knowing this, Jesus did not commit himself to them. Remember, changing the water into wine was Jesus' first miracle. Clearing the temple was his first demonstration of authority and power. It's early in his ministry. The testing of their faith at this time was lacking. In James, we read chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. To the Lord, our hearts are an open book, uh, and he's a speed reader. Uh, He knows us, and thankfully, thankfully, there's no place to hide. I'm so grateful that I realize and not only grateful, but I totally accept the fact that I can't hide from God. Uh, In verse 25, And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, because he knew what was in a man. When Jesus divested himself of his glory to walk among us and minister to us, he became perfectly capable of judging man. It might be argued that Jesus, being God, does not know what it's like to be a man. But if you believe that, you're not believing that he's 100% God and 100% man. If you go there, you're not a believer. When the devil tempted him, evil drew him just as it draws us. He answered with scripture as we should. When he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, his tombs were real and authentic. When his human body was tortured and battered, crucified, and he was killed in my place. All this pain and all this suffering was as, it, as if it would be if, if we were put through it and we were nailed to that cross. He didn't play the God card. Uh, just let us, and just let us think that it hurt him. It hurt him. It hurt him. And, and if it didn't, it wouldn't have any value. It wouldn't have any value if it didn't hurt had no need that anyone should testify of a man, because he knew what was in a man. Our Lord Lord was baptized as a man. He insisted on it over John's objections. He walked from Bethbara to Galilee like a man. By divine appointment, he attended a wedding that was the backdrop for his first miracle, appearing like any other guest, like any man. Changing water into wine, he fulfilled his mother's request, and showed compassion on the bride and groom, revealed his divinity, for he is God. He cleared corruption from the temple, revealing his authority and power, also revealed himself as Messiah. He prophesied his death and resurrection, the Lamb of God. He judged man, and he knew what was in man, because he was 100% man. And yet, as 100% God, he never stopped loving us. I read... Uh, passing a church one day, it said, God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And that's demonstrated here. Verse 16, 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the bottom of an in and out cup. It is. Isn't that great? Uh, 
So I wonder, would Jesus have committed himself to me? Would my belief be authentic, uh, genuine? How would Jesus have seen me back then? How would he have seen you? How would he see us now? I'm going to read something that may or may not have anything to do with this, but I think it does. And I don't know who wrote it. I don't know where I got it. I just was looking through some papers and this thing jumped out at me. (coughs) I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, lift by power, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or uh, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all I know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise. We know you love us. We know you love us. I pray, Father God, that we would say thank you by how we live our lives. May you guide us and direct us as we finish up this day and as we go through the rest of this week. I pray you protect us from the evil one because he's out there. And I pray you watch over us in all that we do. And I pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand. We'll close in worship. Uh, if any-